we're doing things a little bit differently today because of the block of text we had, and we appreciate you folks taking us through that this morning to prepare us for the message. Throughout that little reminder of, of Children's Church, of course, and speaking of reminders, who doesn't appreciate a good reminder every now and again? I don't know about you, but I'm a person whose daily routine thrives on reminders. going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, do you have reminders? Do you need reminders? Do you use them? I have post-it notes. I have notepads uh, on the desk back here in the office galore. If I don't see a stack of scrap paper of some way to use as a reminder, I panic. Um, I, have to ha I have to see that little stack in there uh, before I can function because that's how bad I'm in need of reminders. You know, I can make little name and phone number reminders there on the desk. Uh, I also have phone apps, I have Google calendars uh, for the purpose of, of bigger reminders, scheduling reminders, event reminders. I have an alarm clock next to my bed. There are days I need very loud and obnoxious wake-up reminders or I won't be somewhere on time. Even sometimes with those reminders, I'm not here on time, <clears throat> men's group Saturday. But for those of us with busy plates, these kinds of reminders can be very practical. Sometimes we have physical reminders, don't we? We, we have uh, uh, something on the fridge. Maybe we have a day on a calendar circled. Other reminders have symbolic weight. Uh, we have wedding reminders as a, a reminder of a promise we, we once made to our spouse. That promise is, I promise to make as many reminders regarding the date of our anniversary as possible. Some of us guys need that, don't we? Sorry, honey, I know that was the twins' birthday. I forgot we had children. <laughs> but here's the good news about reminders. Uh, we didn't actually come up with the idea, and that's probably a good thing. You, you know, the Lord, the Lord gave us the idea for reminders. The Lord knows that we need all the help we can get in between all the things that we do with work and sleep and, and everything in between. If you remember way back in Genesis, uh, God gave us the rainbow, didn't he? After the flood, this was uh, to be a reminder. He instituted Passover in the Old Testament, reminders of his love and his mercy and his grace for us. He instituted what we, what we think of as the Lord's Supper in the New Testament as we uh, came to the table today. This is a reminder, spiritual continuation of Passover. Do this in what remembrance of me? Lord knows we need reminders. But these reminders of God, uh, from God aren't, aren't, aren't maybe like a, a honey, honey-do list. Anybody have a honey-do list? Um, my wife has had one of those for me in the past, and she always gets so frustrated by how slowly I'll do what's on it. And I always have to remind, I always have to tell Becky, you know, that when a man says he'll do something, you can trust he'll do it. There's no need to remind him every six months. That was funnier the last time I told it, I know. <laughs> but God's reminders for his people don't really work that way. They're not quite like that. They're not God maybe so much telling us to accomplish something, but they're reminders of what God has accomplished for us or is accomplishing for us. Think of them rather as the Father did, possibly, kind of a reminder. God knows we need to be reminded of what's been on his agenda Ultimately, the only one that matters in eternity. And uh, this is how we're uh, going to go back to where we are this morning. If you remember where we left off several weeks back in our Daniel Sermon Plan series, it's been a few weeks. 
but we were discussing how God's agenda, not the agenda of Babylon, was ultimately in place while God's people were exiled to Babylon. Ultimately, God was in control. This point was made clear chapter after chapter of the text as we've been talking through it. Last time in our series in chapter 7, we had, we had gone back to that first year of, if you remember right, King Belshazzar's rule over the people. And again, if you, need a, if you need a point of reference, if you remember, Belshazzar was the king in that succession of rulers in the first six chapters as we were talking through. He threw the big banquet at the palace in Daniel chapter 5. If you remember, we said, uh, you know, scholars think that part of the reason why they were able to be infiltrated and captured was because everybody was at the palace partying down and they didn't leave any, any gates at the, or any guards at the gate. Uh, probably wasn't the most prepared king in the succession of kings. When we covered chapter 7 a few weeks ago, we talked through Daniel's own vision about the various beasts these beasts in the vision basically represented the kingdoms of power over God's people. Began with King Nebuchadnezzar, which is where we began in the book of Daniel, and it led all the way to Nero. The message God was giving to the people, how God was ultimately in control over all of them and over all these kingdoms of man, it was a reminder until the very end. And we discussed several weeks ago how this imagery given by God to the prophet Daniel from chapter 7, if you remember, it paralleled uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's own dream in chapter 2, remember? That's kind of the word of the day, by the way, remember? Where Daniel in chapter 7 had this imagery, it was a series of beasts. Back in chapter 2, the king saw an image of fine gold in the likeness of a man. But the message was basically the same. Both visions included the presence of this succession of kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Again, Nebuchadnezzar to Nero. The message given to those opposing God. Terrifying. Terrifying. God would sit over them in judgment with their, with, uh, their dominion taken away, Daniel 7.26. But, but the message sent by way of the prophet, to the believers, to those steadfast Jews like Daniel who had spent a lifetime in exile in a foreign land. It was a message of encouragement, wasn't it? A message of encouragement. God promised the rule over all would eventually be, uh, quote, given to the people of the saints of the Most High in verse 27. And this is where we left off in Daniel chapter 7. Again, that first year of Daniel under King Belshazzar. Now, two years later, two years later on the timeline, God is going to send to Daniel another reminder, uh, what we might say a prophetic um, reminder. God is giving Daniel a vision. We've just heard the chapter read, and in, in this vision, Daniel's troubled. He's he's he's. Uh, troubled even more than his last recorded series of dreams or visions. The Bible says here in our text in verse 27, Daniel's appalled. He's made physically ill by what he sees in this chapter 8, that this imagery is far beyond his understanding. Now, perhaps this is because what he sees is going to deal with events that are to come. He's got no, no point of reference at all for what God says through him. But today, we can read through this text and we can see 
But this is a reminder of what God is going to do. What God is going to do in the kingdom over Daniel. This is like a post-it note from the future. God is going to tell Daniel about a future transition from the Medo-Persian rule, from those kings to the Grecian or Greek empire over the people. If you remember previously in the book of Daniel, God has said twice that this change in the kingdoms of man was inevitable. But this morning, do you remember that series of movies, Back to the Future? One of my favorite series of, of uh, films. You might consider this almost like Doc Brown once said to Marty McFly, God is telling Daniel, we're going to send you back to the future. Prophetically speaking, of course. Daniel chapter 8 is a divine reminder of things to come. Let's dig in a little bit because there's some, there's some deep imagery this morning. Now, as most of you know about your preacher, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a music geek. If uh, it, you haven't noticed that, uh, but it's not too bad. I mean, I can quit anytime I want to. But I, I'm, a, I'm a music geek, and I've got uh, this extensive knowledge of useless facts about the subject. Um, I can tell you where to find what song and what live arrangement of a title, for example, from the Bob Dylan discography. I can give you examples of some of the most influential punk rock albums of the 1970s. I'm sure you're all dying to know those. I can talk a little while about what years Johnny Cash recorded gospel. These are things that interest me. And I'd be happy to answer for you that ridiculous age-old question of, about who was better, Beatles or Stones? And the answer, of course, is both. But I bring up all this today because although I'm a, I'm a big fan of all kinds of uh, rock and roll and related from over the last half a century, I'm also a big fan of jazz music. And, and you know what sells me on the jazz music? This might be obvious, but, it, but it's the horns. It's the horn section. The only thing I like better than, than rock and roll and jazz is what they uh, called for a while jazz fusion music or rock music with a horn section. For my money, it just doesn't get any better than rock and roll with a horn section. Because there's just something exclamatory and celebratory about some trumpets and trombones. Uh, to my ears, I know, I'm weird. But I did a little bit of digging into the history of these instruments. And, uh, you know, musicians have been blown into horns for centuries. This isn't like a 20th century idea. But the shapes and the sizes of the instruments, such as we're used to seeing today, have only been in, in existence for a few hundred years. I thought this was really interesting. Around the middle of the 16th century, actually, instruments started appearing from Europe in the form of brass tubes wound into a single hoop with an exit opening or a bell. Uh, for you hunters in the audience, many of the horns people would play were designed up until that time, uh, for example, to be played on the back of a horse during a big hunt. It's interesting. The valve horn now, today, which allows horn players to easily play a series of successive notes. You might call this a scale. This didn't arrive until the 19th century. Now, in case you're wondering, preacher, what's the point of the music history lesson and all the theory? I'm getting to that. My point is to draw your attention to the ancient basic form of the horn itself. Once upon a time, if you were going to blow a horn, there's a chance it may have recently come off the top of an animal. When Jesus was separating the sheep from the goats in the parable, he was actually separating the Christian from the Chicago Transit Authority. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. 
throw that out. But here's something biblical. When Joshua's men carried seven trumpets before the ark of the Lord in Joshua 6, the Bible says they were ram's horns. The Bible says they were ram's horns. The, the word horn here is the same word we find in Genesis 22 when we read about Abraham seeing a ram caught by the horns. When Abraham uses this sacrifice, you know, instead of his son. Biblically speaking, horns had great significance to the Jewish people. Great significance. Serious significance. Even the Jewish altars, Exodus 27, Exodus 30, were designed to have horns attached to them. The prophet Amos tells us in Amos chapter 3, verse 14, that to remove this part of the sacrificial area God commanded was actually to desecrate the altar completely. That's how important horns were to the people. Now, these temple horns weren't just decorative. The Bible says King Solomon was anointed by a priest with the horn of oil in 1 Kings 139. The word also denoted an ancient form of wealth or currency. People would do trading, buying and selling. Uh, you could look at Ezekiel 27:15. But we find this word horn often used in Scripture as a metaphor for great strength and power. That's what catches my ear when I hear some horns on an album. Deuteronomy 33 says, His horns are the horns of a wild ox. There's strength there, great strength and power. That's where we're going this morning with the use of the word horn. And perhaps most strikingly, the idea of horns at the source, animals in battle, this gets plenty of usage throughout the Bible. One commentator notes that the, the word horn in this case gives us the idea of a aggressive strength. Uh, if you want to jot down a couple scriptures to look up, you might look up Deuteronomy 33.17. Here's a good usage of it. Uh, Deuteronomy 33.17, another one, 1 Kings 22.11. Some more scriptures that give us this idea of aggressive strength in the imagery of the horn. It was a big deal to the people. Here's a poetry usage from Hebrew scripture of the word. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the biblical Hannah prays, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. Interesting metaphor. Samuel was obviously a, a fan of this kind of, uh, maybe, I don't know, unicorn imagery. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.10, it is said of the Lord that he exalts the horn of his anointed. The word comes up often in the Old Testament. But the point here is not the animal by which the horn is worn, but the strength, honor, and chief weapon of the animal underneath. The strength by the horn. Please don't go off thinking the Bible chases after unicorns. That would be Al Gore. Anyway, the Bible, that's my political humor for the day. The Bible speaks of the horn as ornamentation, yet another reason for its presence, not just in ancient religious expression, but also on many of, again, my favorite jazz records. Horn just look and sound powerful. The Holy Spirit inspired words of God use them this way as well. So this, this horn section, as I'm calling it, found in our text, which uh, the Waldrons graciously read for us a little while ago, this was a message from God through Daniel regarding God's role as ultimate music director, if you will, over even the great horns of the nations, the great strength and power and aggression 
of the leaders of the world. Look back with me through the text, chapter 8, verse 3. The Lord chose Daniel, a ram with two high horns, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Verse 4 continues, No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. The horn denoting this. Now follow with me again in verse 5 as I was considering. Behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Verses 6 through 8 then of our text describe a battle sequence between the ram and the goat. The goat runs at the ram in verse 7, breaks the two horns, leaving the ram powerless without hope of rescue. That's the uh, strength, that's the might there in the horn. And in verse 8, the text describes the goat becoming exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And verses 9 through 12 then describe the earthly rule that comes from the remains of this goat's horn, even to the host of heaven, growing so mighty that it will throw truth to the ground, what the prophet says. And then the question is asked in Daniel's vision, okay, but on what kind of a timeline are these events to take place? This transgression, this giving over of the sanctuary, verse 13, and the number 2,300 evenings and mornings is given as an answer in verse 14. And the significance is this, again, it doesn't matter who ends up with all this power. It's temporary. And maybe we're thinking, I was here for that Daniel chapter 7 message, and this sounds quite a bit like it. And if that's what you're thinking, you're absolutely right. But in Daniel chapter 7, the span of kingdoms given through the imagery is much wider. In this vision... Daniel sees uh, a two-horned ram. What's this symbolic for? This period of time in which the kingdom is consumed by the Medo and Persian Empire. The ram is taken in battle by a one-horned goat, symbolic, of course, for the Greek era. The Greek era in the Near East. In verse 8, we understand, looking back, how the capture of the Medo-Persians by the Greeks would include four Greek successors. These would be the, the dividers. We can look back now and see the dividers of Alexander the Great's empire. Those four conspicuous horns. Now, ultimately, a king would come into power who would take the throne to greatly persecute the Jews and put a stop to their daily temple sacrifices. This comes up in verses 9 to 13 of our text. And when we read this, we can understand that this prophecy regarding the future of this land isn't going to be going to be pretty. And you know what? You probably couldn't dance to it either. But ultimately, God was in control. Ultimately, God was in control, in charge. His people would only have to what? Face the music of earthly battle for a short time. This was actually a message of encouragement once again. We spoke previously in this series, came up this morning in Sunday school class again, also in, in, in Ralph's class. We spoke previously in this series on the topic of, of Christian persecution in this country, didn't we? And the question that comes up sometimes in our minds when we think about the powers that be, are we seeing the beginnings of an era in which God's people, as the text says will happen here, may similarly be trampled underfoot, verse 12, even in the land of the free today? Are we at the beginnings of that? Perhaps, just last week, in the news, we hear the satanic temple 
was approved by the IRS as a tax-exempt church, the Satanic Temple. This organization doesn't just exist in L.A. They're not just out in New York. There's one in Detroit. While the Satanic Temple, by its own statement of beliefs, doesn't even believe Satan exists, which that's their first mistake, they use his name, quote, as a symbol of the eternal rebel in opposition to arbitrary authority. Aren't you glad they're now eligible for faith-based government grants? Meanwhile, at the same time, while the Christian nativity scenes and the crosses are coming down off of some places paid for by American taxpayers, a pair of public colleges, including the University of Michigan-Dearborn, this is happening right here, a pair of public-funded schools have started constructing special foot baths to accommodate students in Islamic prayer rituals. This is happening right now, right here. It's funny, or it's rather sad, how separation of church and state only seems to work against Christians. Are God's people in trouble in America? In the United States, as of 2016, only 48% or less than half of the population considers themselves as believers of traditional Christianity. The liberal media is actually right on this when we've lost the majority. So how long, I ask you, can we, longer, can we still honestly refer to the United States as a Christian nation? Christians are no longer the majority. And furthermore, how long will the beliefs of conservative Christians be tolerated by groups with a history for non-tolerance? Fortunately, the animal with the biggest horn is still somewhat sympathetic to the cause of Christ. But the kind of future Daniel and God's people were facing in Babylon looked far worse than anything we're seeing at the moment. Not the case for Christians the world over. This actually came up earlier in class. The horn to heaven over China, where 60 million Christians live under the rule of President Xi Jinping, is inflicting what is being called the most severe crackdown on Christianity in decades. Just before Christmas of last year, the Chinese police shut down schools and seminaries, confiscated Bibles and detained ministers on charges of inciting subversion, which is punishable by five years in prison. Mr. Jinping, one source says, concerned that independent worship might pose a threat to the ruling Communist Party's dominance over daily life, has sought to bring Christianity under the party's control. And so the government this year banned online sales of the Bible, burned crosses, demolished church buildings, and forced numerous places of worship to close. But instead of surrendering the faith, Chinese Christians are gathering in homes with friends and family members for private worship. You see, Christian persecution doesn't ever put out Christianity, does it? It just drives the believers underground where they grow, such as they did in Judea 2,000 years ago. But so this horn of our text, which grew great, which we can almost see playing out in, in today's world, half the world over. This horn, which grew great even to the host of heaven, which took away the place of sanctuary and the regular burnt offering and everything else that the ancient Jews held uh, near, dear to them while their faith was under attack, may have a modern parallel. But who can we specifically identify from our text as the great one who shall destroy many and rise up against the prince of princes in verse 25? But we need to be careful here. We need to be careful here when we look at this imagery. Because remember, it's got to be somewhere on the ancient timeline between the rise of the Grecian Empire and Rome, doesn't it? This is where we're going on the timeline. 
Sometimes we, we look at this text and we see people want to take texts such as this and say, well, uh, this is obviously a, a veiled reference to the Vatican or Muhammad, or if you squint just right at the text and read between the lines in verse 25, I'm almost positive God is warning us about the rise of Hillary Clinton. No, it says in his mind, okay, it must be Bill. Stop. In the year 175 B.C., a king named Antiochus Epiphanes took the throne over the Greeks. And among his accomplishments was the most severe crackdown on God's people in centuries. One source notes, his oppression of the Jews included the outlawing of Jewish customs, circumcision, the monthly calendar, dietary restrictions, observance of the Sabbath. Antiochus actually made ownership of the Torah, the books of Moses, a capital offense. To make it worse, this oppressive monarch built an altar for the Greek god Zeus in the Jewish temple. This was a warning from the Lord about times to come under intense persecution. So perhaps now we may better understand the words of the angel Gabriel today who interprets this chapter 8 vision for Daniel. He says in verse 25, By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. In his own mind, he shall become great. 175 B.C. would come, people would know. People would understand the vision. And you remember the 2,300 days we've talked about today, Daniel has promised before the Jewish sanctuary was restored to its rightful state in verse 14. Well, God, God kept his promise as he always does, his promise of salvation. See, the persecution of the Jews under this horn, this great horn of Antiochus, lasted from uh, September 171 to December 165 B.C. And when Antiochus died, the Jews purified and rededicated the temple. 2,300 days, six years and a third. And what's really interesting is a couple hundred years later, Jesus Christ himself would celebrate the rededication of the temple later, John chapter 10, verse 22, at festival time, or we might think of it as Hanukkah. So God keeps his promises, doesn't he? God keeps his promises. There's a lot going on in our text today. But again, we come back to the idea of a reminder. A reminder of he who is sovereign. A reminder of he who is great, who is over us. A reminder that when God says something to you or through you, he means it, even if you can't comprehend what he's doing at the time. Look at verse 15 with me in the text. Gabriel says to Daniel, understand that the vision is for the time of the end, and, and he means this. You notice that God didn't provide Daniel knowledge of his entire plan, didn't give him all these names, didn't give him all these uh, specifics. But God gave him enough so that Daniel would remember God had a plan. And that's all we need to remember. After God sent Gabriel to interpret much of this vision from chapter 8, Daniel was distraught, but he did hear good news on the way. He recognized good news was on the way. And here it is later on. You know that name Gabriel? Remember that angel Gabriel? The same Gabriel would visit a young Jewish couple named Mary and Joseph. So God's people would know good news had come because God keeps his promises. And we need a good reminder every now and again, don't we? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, as we look at the world we live in today, 
And as we live through many decades on this earth, Lord, we see the exchange of power among us often. And Lord, sometimes we, we fear what's going on around us or we don't understand what's going on around us. We don't understand how you could be at work. Lord, we, we see so much evil in the world. We're aware of persecution for our brothers and sisters in other countries. Places, Lord, where we can't even go out in broad daylight to speak your name. And yet, Lord, we see that even in these areas, Lord, the devil cannot put out what you've began. Lord, we know that the gates of hell cannot overcome your church. Again, another promise. Lord, we know that your people are a treasured people. Lord, I thank you for your word that even though we may not always understand your plan, Lord, we may not understand where you're going. God, we know you're already there. You're outside of the time that we're, we're a part of. And Lord, you, you call out to us to trust you in all things. Lord, we thank you that we do live at a time in our country, in this nation, in which we are free. We can talk about you. Lord, we know that that's not always maybe going to be the case. Although you've called us to holiness, Lord, the tide is changing in our country. As far as we can tell, Lord, we know we may be entering times in which the great horn may not be one that favors you and your people. Lord, no matter what happens, may we draw closer to you. Lord, no matter what Christians are in for, in the future, in this nation, Lord. Help us to call out your name. Help us to remember that you have a plan and you are going to continue to work through your people until you return for us to take us home. Lord, you've, you've kept every single one of your promises to us. As a people, as individuals, Help us to cling to you today and always. Lord, there, there's no surprises to you. We know that you, that you have either put something in motion or you've allowed it. And that goes for uh, the things that, that may be happening in our country, in our world, and in our individual lives. Help us to be reminded every day that you are sovereign. You are in control. And that the most important thing in our lives is the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and love and mercy. It is in his powerful, most powerful name of all, I pray. Amen.